Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Aron. And I'm Nicole. And today we're talking about how to manage hunger in a fat loss phase. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 117 of the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast. Today, we want to talk about how to manage hunger and cravings and keep you satiated through your fat loss phase. And there are a few things, Nicole, that we put down on this outline here, but I think I want to kind of preface this with the first thing that you want to do when you are in a fat loss phase is ensure and this is going to right off the bat sound a little counterintuitive but we'll we'll talk about why it's important the first thing you want to do is you want to ensure that you're eating adequate calories because you don't want to be in too big of a deficit for various different reasons right the first reason why you don't want to be in too large of a calorie deficit is you want to do whatever you can to be muscle sparing and if you're eating too low of calories you are going to lose muscle mass along with body fat and it's very important to maintain your muscle. Again, like we say all the time, you don't want to lose weight. You want to lose body fat. That is the ideal situation for you. The other piece is that you are going to be, if you're, I'll kind of put it like this. If you are going to be too restrictive, that's going to backfire on you in terms of hunger, energy, and cravings. The three things that we talk about in terms of, or I guess those are three of the things that we talk about in terms of monitoring your biofeedback. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure that you still have enough energy to perform in the gym. You're not losing a ton of strength. You might lose a little bit towards the end of your fat loss phase uh, and make sure that you're not constantly hungry and ravenous. You want to really kind of ask yourself on a scale of one to 10, like, look, it's normal to have some level of hunger And that is one of those kind of predictive measures that I even use with people to say, well, are you hungry? And if you're not, maybe we can actually adjust and lower your calories Mm -hmm. a little bit, but you don't want to be in this ravenous scenario. You want to be hungry, but you don't want to be ravenous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that middle ground. So I just I guess I just wanted to kind of preface that by saying, you know, you want to make sure that you're eating adequate calories. You want to be, you don't want to be in too big of a deficit. You want to be anywhere uh, between two and 500 calories below maintenance, which 500 is going to be the more aggressive piece. I generally like to start for myself as well as my clients in something less aggressive, because obviously the more aggressive you get right off the bat, two things really are kind of going to happen here. One, you're going to be more significantly hungry if you go more aggressive right out of the gate. Uh, And number two is you want to be able to leave yourself some tools to pull out later on, right? Right. And this is where I get into, hey, like if you're going into a calorie deficit, you don't want to just blast cardio, blast your, your calorie deficit. And like, I always say, okay, well, let's start with the nutrition. Let's create a small deficit. Then let's add cardio. Then let's create a slightly bigger deficit. Then let's add more cardio and kind of play this game of, which dial are we consistently moving up to a certain point? Obviously, there's a threshold with both of those. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's important to focus on both of those things and leave yourself things in the tool to kind of change and create a new stimulus down the road. 
Yes, could not agree more. I also think, too, one thing to say about a slower or smaller deficit is that it might take more time for your body to adjust to a small deficit. Like, I mean, anybody can cut 500 calories out of their day and see some change, but then you can't do it for very long if your hunger, energy, and cravings are all over the place. But if you start with like a 200 to 250, you may not, you know, because people like to see a little change in food or exercise and a giant change on the scale, right? Instead of a little change in food and exercise and a small change in the scale. And then that change gets bigger and bigger. Like the body will build up some momentum to having that little bit less calories per day over time. So you also have to have a little bit of patience. I have had clients that will start with 250 calories less. And in the first week, they don't feel any hunger. They kind of feel okay. Things are are pretty normal. Not much feels like it's changing and they may lose 0.2 to 0.5 on the scale. But then the second and third week, the hunger starts to creep in a little bit more. Their body starts to feel the changes a little bit more. They're keeping up with the deficit. And then all of a sudden, the momentum starts to build and change happens a little bit faster. So, you know, speaking of because you mentioned uh, 0.2 to 0.5. Mm-hmm. So I started a fat loss phase. I've I finished off week three and mm-hmm. I just kind of like a side note, I'm going to take a little detour here. So one thing is that the first two weeks it was so it was two pounds and two pounds. So it was four pounds mm-hmm. in the first two weeks. And then the third pound, the third pound, the third week was a half a pound. Yeah. And, I, and I'm like, fuck, I only lost half a pound. And then I'm thinking but to myself, it can happen wait, wait, that wait, way on, too, right? But then I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, I would have told my client like, excellent job. You lost a half yeah, a pound. Right. Like, so it's, <laughs> exactly. I, I, I see where clients are coming from when they're like, I only lost half a pound. And it's like, it's, you want it to be. But that's because a, that went the other way around though. Well, you when want you it start to start with, hold on. When you no, start with you, two pounds, two pounds, and then you go to half a pound, that's the, that's a huge, that's a huge hit because you think it's going to be two pounds as you keep going. It's not going to be that way. Like we have to talk about that too. Well, also you're going to, lose the you're going to lose a significant amount in the beginning and then it's going to taper off. Now, yeah. the the second thing I want to say about that is what I realized about myself that I also realized with clients, you know, it, it kind of hits home differently when you're doing it with yourself and you you almost have these light bulb moments like, oh, this mm-hmm. is because I haven't really been in a significant fat loss phase in a while where I'm like, all right, I have a clear goal and a clear timeline, right? So yeah. I created for myself a a timeline of by January 15th, I want to be at this specific weight. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot easier for me. And I think this is something that I oftentimes gets overlooked. And we haven't really talked about this in a while. When creating a goal following the, you know, quote unquote, like that smart criteria, it has to be specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, or relevant, depending on where you look. And then time bound, uh, I think it's really important to it. It had you if you have a clear date, Mm-hmm. it's like that light at the end of the tunnel, like, okay, I need to do what I need to do. And then it also gives you guidance of, all right, well, what are the outcomes that I need, the measurable outcomes on a week to week basis, if I were to yeah. break this down over the course of three months, right? Yeah. So I just thought that was interesting and wanted to bring that up. Were you hungry the first week or two when you lost two pounds? I am. I've been, I, I think the first week I wasn't, yeah. And I haven't changed my calories at all. Mm-hmm. So the first week I wasn't going into the second week, there was an adjustment where I was same mm-hmm. amount of calories. Yeah. Same 
uh, more or less same macronutrient distribution. Mm -hmm. I'm doing it a little bit differently than I have done previously, uh, where I would be like, all right, on target with fat, on target with carbs, on target with protein. I'm really more so just like, all right, there's a minimum threshold. So I mm -hmm. gave myself a protein range. Yeah. Uh, I gave myself like an upper limit and a minimum threshold. And mm -hmm. then I actually am like, I would prefer to have a little bit more carbohydrates and a little bit less fat, but just naturally it's working out where I have more fat and less carbs. Mm -hmm. And I'm okay with that as long as I don't go below a, a threshold with my carbs because yeah. Like the threshold with fat, I don't really care for because day to day mm -hmm. it's going to, I'm going to have some fluctuations, but mm -hmm. the threshold with carbs, I think it's going to affect my performance and my recovery yeah. if I'm not eating adequate carbohydrates. So yeah. with that being said, I'm okay with having slightly more fat as long as I'm not having like, if I have 200 grams of carbs in a day, that's like way too low for me. Yeah. I want to be somewhere in like the range of I don't know, let's say 280 to 300 would be ideal for uh, carbohydrates for me. Mm -hmm. But that's a good point. Like it starts off, you lose two pounds, you're not as hungry. You're not hungry. The second week you lose two pounds, you're starting to get a little hungry. So it can go either way. Your body may slowly lose weight as you get more hungry or you start off fast or right out the gate losing weight and then it tapers. I think the point I'm trying to make is it's interesting because clients always say to me, it's the same amount of calories. Like I didn't drop any calories and I'm losing weight faster or slower. Like I really love that people think their body can just like things just happen in these weird ways. I'm like, no, your body is kind of like an ocean on a boat or a boat on an ocean. And so as the ocean gets a little rough, the boat's going to like move around. It's going to go up and down. It may get some water in it, it may tilt, it may twirl like you can't really control that you have to kind of just ride the wave yeah there's there are a ton of different factors when it comes to you know fat loss that your body will go through day-to-day -day changes maybe your stress is a little bit higher your sleep uh, varies and you know mm -hmm. speaking about sleep let's get into uh the first okay. part here of managing your hunger and cravings uh according to since we're we kind of brought up sleep according to the cdc data one in three Americans don't get adequate sleep and adequate sleep is classified as getting at least seven hours a night. And I will say that the range is seven to nine hours. And I do have something to say about this that I have heard from way too many people thinking that they're the exception to the rule and, oh, I can function <laughs> off five or six. Like there are <laughs> outliers. Don't get me wrong. There are outliers of people that can get away with less sleep and still be high performers and still not have, you know, in our context here, not have hunger and cravings and still perform well in the gym and all this stuff. But too many people will say that to me where I'm like, okay, you can't all possibly be the fucking outliers, right? So, <laughs> you know, just the, the general, as a general rule of thumb, anywhere between seven and nine hours is what individuals need. And it's going to be, you know, slightly more, or slightly less, depending on the individual. I know for myself, I need a minimum of seven hours. If I can get eight, I'm going to feel great. If I can get seven, I'm going to feel good. Anything below seven, six, six yeah, point five train wreck. It's not. Listen, I'll get through the day. I'll still do what I need to do, but it's going to affect me. It's going to affect my performance. I might need some extra pre-workout. Like it's definitely going to, I'm going to feel it. Now, sleep 
it's thought that and you know this is kind of supported supported with some research is that mechanistically um getting less than seven hours of sleep can lead to a homeostatic imbalance in hunger regulation and appetite regulation through there's kind of two ways that this happens right so the first way is hunger can be physiological and then appetite is psychological right so there's a difference between those two right Hunger being physiological is like, I kind of look at it like this, like hunger is uh, hormones are at play that control how -hmm. hungry you are or even how satiated you are. And we'll get into some of those hormones in a bit. And then appetite is like the psychological drive to eat, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Right. So from an appetite standpoint, um, lack of sleep would be like a perceived stress on the body, which may increase the psychological drive to eat. And in fact, there are studies using subjective hunger scales that show that uh, participants who are sleep deprived tend to report a higher likelihood of a desire to eat. Yeah. To get them through, possibly. Hmm? What do you mean? To get you think them like to get them through the day in order to like fight the fatigue, or at least that's what I have experienced with clients. Like I'll, the, what the dialogue will look like is, I didn't get enough sleep last night and I woke up and I, I feel like I need energy or fuel. So I'm feel I feel hungrier. Well, they just want to eat more. Like, right. You just want to like it. You could well, be that's a, so here's kind of what thing. I'm saying. But from, here's what I'm saying. Mine. <laughs> you could you could be not physically hungry. This is my point. And still have an appetite to eat more. Right. But I think. OK, so then we're agreeing. Are we, though? Yeah, because you're saying it's it's a mindset or a thought process. And that I think is absolutely true. Like I I feel more hungry versus I am more hungry is very different than, you know, I woke up and I was excited to have breakfast and I feel satiated after because I also feel like appetite increase from sleep deprivation. There isn't a feeling of fullness no matter what you eat. Yeah, maybe, you know, you know what I think of when I think of um, psychological uh, when I think of like appetite, I mm-hmm. I think of the feeling. And so I was and I, nobody will believe this. I was a smoker for like over 10 years mm-hmm. in my younger days. I started in, I don't know, probably in high school. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's just interesting because smoking cigarettes is like not it's so taboo nowadays. <laughs> where like when I was growing up, it's like you were a cool kid if you were, you know, outside of the high school smoking cigarettes. But yeah. Um, the feeling of wanting or quote unquote needing a cigarette, mm-hmm. that to me is similar to the feeling of like, if I'm, let's say I'm sleep deprived and I haven't had, uh, let's say I ate a meal and I'm still like, I want something sweet after that meal. Yeah. Like it, to me, it's like the same kind of feeling, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get into the physiological standpoint. Um, the physiological standpoint has to do with specific hormones. So there's leptin in play. Uh, there's ghrelin in play. Essentially, you have a reduction in like when you're sleep deprived, you have a reduction in leptin, which leptin is the hormone that's produced by your fat cells uh, to tell your body that you are full. We talked about this in the last podcast, uh, and we also talked about ghrelin which ghrelin is secreted by your stomach to tell your body that you your stomach is empty, right? So essentially, 
you know, they have like a, a kind of opposing effect there. Right. But if leptin is suppressed and ghrelin is increased, then you have both of these two hormones in play that are telling you, Hey, you're hungry. Mm-hmm. Right. So you, you have like from a hormonal standpoint, from a physiological standpoint, that's what is going on. That's what's in play there. Now from a desire to eat standpoint, this is actually interesting. So I looked at some data on this and in terms of macronutrients. So when it comes to carbohydrates, uh, the results are mixed in terms of whether or not you want to eat carbohydrates as a result of lack of sleep protein. I already know, like, I don't need to look at data to tell me that people don't generally gravitate towards, I want to eat more protein because I haven't slept. But what it seems to, what seems to be consistent is that people are eating foods higher in fat when they're sleep deprived, which means that in a fat loss phase, because fat is so much more calorically dense, you're likely to go way over on calories when you're having those cravings. Now I'll say I I did some thinking on this and I'm like, all right, well, I do feel like for myself, if I'm sleep deprived, I tend to eat more foods that are like quote unquote higher in carbs. But then I thought about it even further and I'm like, well, those foods are more hyper palatable, right? So those are foods that are really just higher in sugar, fat, and salt. And so I think what's happening is that our kind of reward center needs to be triggered when we are sleep deprived. That's the feeling. That's what I'm saying. That's the feel good feeling versus I'm hungry for a meal that's balanced. I agree. Yeah. People don't want to eat their meals when they're and neither do I. Right. Nobody does. I was just going to say, who the hell wants that? I want pancakes and syrup and, you know, that's my point about the feeling part, Daronis. It's it's a response to maybe maybe it's keeping the mind going versus the physical body. Like when I eat chocolate and I feel good, I'm I'm ready to take on my next business meeting. And maybe that's what I mean by getting us through to the next you know part of the day. Yeah. And I think the reason why I wanted to bring the reason why I put sleep first is because I think sleep is the most important one. Yeah. It's and the I starting think- point. And I think sleep is the most overlooked one. People don't they don't think about the drastic effect of sleep deprivation on not only their fat loss, but also on their health. Right. So we look at people who are uh, lacking sleep. Right. And this is kind of disassociation here. Right. When you look at epidemiological studies, people who lack sleep are more likely to develop type two diabetes, insulin resistance, cardiovascular disease, right? Cancer, right? Cancer genes turned on and off. We've seen many studies on that, right? Like, so the importance of sleep and the impact of sleep on overall health, not even Mm -hmm. talking about fat loss is, I think people should be focusing on that more than they're even focusing on the food aspects. But I think we also have like this society that's like, and I think it's shifting, but we've generally had the society that's like, I'll sleep when I'm dead. I need to get this weight off. So I, you know, I can't worry about sleep. I just need to work, work, work. And it's the opposite. You need to focus on more sleep. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about some solutions. First and foremost, you want to manage your sleep. Second, how do you manage your sleep? Right. So we talked about getting seven to nine hours per night. Uh, And I think two things that people don't understand and don't realize is this is what I hear all the time. Well, I have alcohol as a nightcap and it helps me fall asleep. And many people seem to think that alcohol helps them sleep because alcohol is a sedative. 
But the problem is, is that alcohol is a sedative in the sense of like, there are um, like the med- some of the medications that knock you out mm-hmm. that are that you use in order to help you sleep. Um, mm-hmm. The unfortunate piece is when you look at like brain scans of people while and you do sleep studies of people when they're taking medication versus natural sleep, their brain waves are, are a lot different, right? And the difference is because they're doing just that, they're knocking you out. You're not actually going through your normal sleep cycles. And what's happening with alcohol, what we find is that alcohol increases the number of times that you actually wake up at night. But you know, when you like wake up in the middle of the night and then you just go back to sleep, like you don't, you don't remember that because you're kind of like, you know, you wake up for a couple of minutes, you go right back to sleep. So what alcohol is doing is is actually increasing the number of times that you wake up. So it's affecting both your quantity and the quality of your sleep, because when your sleep is interrupted, you have to kind of reset that clock of your, your sleep cycles all over again, because the Mm -hmm. way that sleep works is you go into kind of light sleep and then you go into a REM cycle and then you go into a deep sleep and then REM cycle and then deeper into a deep sleep and then REM cycle. And you have all these cycles throughout the night. What happens is every time you wake up in the middle of the night, you're interrupting that and your deep sleep isn't as deep as it would have been if you had slept through the entire night. And the other thing that's affected with alcohol is also your uh, REM sleep, which is when you dream. Uh, and REM sleep has uh, implications in mental health and well-being overall, right? So, and then we're talking about cravings, like you feel like shit about yourself, you're depressed, your well-being isn't being taken care of because you're not getting adequate REM sleep. And then uh, marijuana, which, you know, people, it's interesting because I have conversations with clients about, and I'm not anti, like you want to smoke weed, it's cool, go ahead. But if you look at like when people say, I'm like, well, marijuana is not great for sleep. And they're like, well, then you just have to consider what strain you're smoking, right? If you're smoking a sativa or indica, right? And indica is like a downer and sativa is an upper. And you're like waving your hands like you're like, I don't know. I have no idea. But okay, go ahead. All right. So sativa strains are generally more kind of upper, like, you know, make you a little bit more awake. I was going to say awake and alert, but you're not really that alert when you're I was going to say but late. Right. So but sativa is like more of an upper and indica is more of a downer. So people will argue that, well, if I have indica, I get better sleep. But indica is also going to similarly to alcohol, it's going to affect your REM sleep. And what, what you find what people report when they when they stop smoking weed, they find like, wow, I'm having really vivid dreams. And it's because you're dreaming again. When you smoke weed before you go to bed, you're inhibiting your ability to dream. Um, So you're not getting at at least for THC now, like CBD doesn't seem to impact your REM sleep. Um, I've looked into, I just don't think that there are nearly enough studies on CBD to say that it can be helpful as a sleep aid. Um, I looked into Nicole, when we first started this podcast, like two years ago, I remember I looked in, I was Mm -hmm. like, let's do a CBD uh, episode. And there just wasn't enough info at that time yet. Um, And I think, you know, maybe I'll revisit that and see what I can find. But I think generally speaking, like using substances to help you sleep isn't a good idea. Practicing sleep hygiene is going to be first and foremost. So no TV in the bedroom, TV off, phone off, stop scrolling at a certain time. Uh, You know, you can set the, um, the, the dimmer on the iPhone now, right? Where it turns more red. Uh, And the reason being is because 
that limits the blue light and blue light is uh, shown to have the biggest impact on melatonin production and melatonin being uh, the hormone that helps you to relax before you go to bed. Uh, essentially, we have too much exposure to light before we go to bed. So we need to try and reduce that. Now, some things that you can take or supplement with in order to get you to bed right now while you're working on your sleep hygiene. The first one is ashwagandha, which is an adaptogenic herb that helps you to manage the, your body's stress response. And what I'll say about ashwagandha is uh, it's like if you are that person that kind of feels like tired and wired in the evening and like your brain is racing and you can't really uh, you can't slow down and shut your brain down. I think ashwagandha is the perfect supplement for you uh, in terms of like from a, a sleep standpoint to get your brain to calm down because it helps to reduce catecholamines like dopamine, norepinephrine, things like that, that will be potentially racing while you're sleeping. The other thing that I will say is valerian root is a really good supplement, really powerful for helping to calm you down and help you to sleep and really puts you in that kind of deep sleep space. Uh, you can also supplement with melatonin. What I would say is anywhere from 300 micrograms to three milligrams would be max. I know that they do make like 10 milligram supplements. I think that's a little bit excessive, especially considering that the human body on average only produces about 300 micrograms per day. So you're looking at, I don't know, we'll call it, what is it? That's, that's a thousand, that's a thousand times, right? Mil micrograms to milligrams. So that's a thousand times what the human body naturally creates. So really, if you can find a 300 microgram supplement would be good. And if you can find a time released 300 microgram supplement, I think that would be good too. But I think I would put the upper limit in terms of sleep uh, at three milligrams. And then magnesium, which helps to regulate your sleep-wake cycles, helps to put you in that deeper sleep. I always say magnesium is really good for keeping you asleep. Uh, and magnesium glycinate, you can't just take any magnesium off the shelf, but magnesium glycinate uh, is because glycine also has a natural sedative effect. Uh, that type I use specifically for sleep. And depending on what you're using magnesium for, you may want to use different forms of magnesium. Um, but from a sleep standpoint, I'll say magnesium glycinate. Cool. All right. You want to move on to the next one? Sure. So the next thing uh, we're going to talk about is fiber and specific types of fiber, specifically beta glucans, like things that you'll find in oats. Uh, you'll also find beta glucans in mushrooms. You'll also, uh, I'm not sure. Well, inulin is really high in garlic. Um, I'd have to really kind of look up. I mean, you can Google sources of beta glucans and that's pretty much what I would do. So uh, Beta-glucans and oats are shown to have a really positive effect on perception of satiety after a meal. Uh, this is shown with many different types of fiber, but not all. This is why it's important to get a variety of different foods in. So when it comes to produce, when it comes to eating plants, really just varying your sources so that you're getting a ton of different types of, it's not just about soluble and insoluble fiber. It is also sometimes about what type of soluble and in, insoluble uh, fiber you're actually getting. There are the other piece that I'll say is this is when it comes to eating plants. So there are two things that I'll say one. And this I was shocked about when I looked into this is that you get a in terms of fiber, you get a better bang for your buck eating whole grains than you do vegetables, right? You would think 
naturally like, oh, vegetables are going to be the highest source. But if you look at like, let's say half cup of oats, which is like about what Nicole, like five grams of fiber versus like the same volume of broccoli, you may get like half a gram of fiber, right? Mm -hmm. So focusing on whole grains, focusing on vegetables, uh, and then focusing on like where your produce, like what form is your produce coming in that? So like studies comparing different fruits, and I feel like this is an obvious one, but sometimes what's obvious to me or you, Nicole, isn't really Mm -hmm. necessarily obvious to our audience. Mm -hmm. Uh, studies comparing fruits in different forms show differences in their ability to satiate. Also, you'll see differences in calorie intake in a meal, right? So for example, if you have an apple versus applesauce versus apple juice, yes, those different layers are going to affect your satiety. Obviously, the apple is going to fill you up more than the applesauce, and then the applesauce is going to fill you up more than the apple juice. So this is, this is twofold. So one, you're delaying gastric emptying by just consuming fiber. And two, your body is going to have to mechanically break it down, which is also going to affect the rate at which it gets digested. So if you think about that, that's going to affect how quickly or how satiated you are after that meal, but also how quickly and how soon you are hungry leading into the next meal, right? I kind of use the example of uh, like, I find this with myself. If I do whey protein versus a chicken breast, for example. Yeah. Well, you have to chew the chicken. You have to chew the apple. So you also eat it slower, right? Then your body has to break it down and utilize it. And then you go from there, your stomach takes over, but you drink apple juice or you drink a shake. It's not as slow to be eaten, et cetera. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So like the eating more whole food and this is where we get into whole foods. We could just yeah. say that right as a blanket statement, like just eat more whole foods. And this is where when people say, well, can I supplement if I'm mm-hmm. having a hard mm-hmm. time, let's say getting my protein intake or something like that. And I'm yeah. like, yeah. You can absolutely supplement, but just be careful with how much you supplement. And you have to, again, look at biofeedback and say, Mm -hmm. okay, well, how hungry am I? And can I solve this by just eating the whole version of, let's say, a protein or whatever, right? That's why you find like things that are already mechanically broken down by a machine for you, like Mm -hmm. juices, powders, even protein bars, right? Those aren't going to fill you up as much as having the whole food version and and your body having to do the work to break it down. And I'll even go as far as to say this, the thermic effect of food is going to be higher in something that your body has to work and expend energy to break down anyway. So it's going to be a win-win from that standpoint too. Yeah. And I also think from a, you know, we talk about fast food, liquid protein shakes included. Like I know it's, it's hard when you're trying to get a certain amount of calories and hit all your macros it's not just about supplementing to get, to get the amount in. It's also because people are not sitting down to eat food. They're eating while they're doing something. So eating an apple at your computer versus drinking apple juice at your computer or eating a chicken breast at your computer at work versus drinking a protein shake. Like I say this to clients all the time. I understand that there's a a level of trying to get food in during the day when you have multiple things going on, but when you can sit and eat, which also helps with digestion and hunger control is to stop, sit down, close your computer, like literally focus on having the meal, enjoying the meal, tasting, chewing, swallowing the meal. So slowing down the actual process of eating and eating a whole food 
is definitely going to help with how good you feel or how satiated you feel after you eat it. Yeah. And then the other thing with the juice piece is, and I kind of used to think with this process too, I think a lot of people will think, oh, well, you know, juice and blood sugar response and things like that. I, you know, from a health standpoint, I want to say like, if you're in a calorie deficit or you're in calorie maintenance, I don't really look at that from a health standpoint as much as I would if we're looking at uh, glycemic control when calories are in excess, because that seems to be where you end up in trouble from a health, a health perspective. But that's not to say like, so drinking juices will, what the issue is really is that it's going to lead you to be hungrier and therefore end up potentially consuming calories in excess, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's where the problem lies more so than in oh, well, apple juice, it doesn't have fiber, like fruit pectin and things like that, that you'll have in a whole apple and you're going to have a higher glycemic response. I think the, the, the more detrimental piece to it is the glycemic response combined with an excess of calories, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's funny when you say apple juice, because I just think juice boxes and little kids, like I really don't put that in an adult category of food, which is hilarious as I sit here listening to you. Same thing with orange juice. Like the only time I ever have had a juice as an adult is like breakfast on a Sunday morning if we go to like a diner. And that's very rare. Juice is a treat, right? Yeah, juice is like, juice is like <laughs> if I like on the uh, the rare occasion right now that let's say I'm like, all right, you know what? I'm just going to take a day to kind of regroup. I'm, I feel like eating some things that are you know, even in my deficit, like, oh, I just feel like taking a day to, you know, do what I want to do. Um, if I go to the bagel place and I do like a bacon, egg and cheese with an orange juice, but that's oh, not, yeah. but here's the thing, Nicole is like, how many times in a food journal have you seen that? Like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, that's like, every on, the, morning. Yeah. on the way that's to work, I'm saying. right. You go out and you grab that bacon, egg and cheese and you have your juice with it. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Um, and then solution wise, listen, aim for mostly whole grains. When it comes to fiber, whole grains, like we said, are going to have uh, a lot more than than uh, a lot more fiber, a lot more bang for your buck than vegetables. Although what I will say is this too: vegetables allow for a higher volume. Yes. And this is this is going to be super important when it comes to being satiated, right? Is it's also kind of like you're looking at yes, you're getting adequate fiber, but it's also about volume, right? So a perfect example is this. When I tell somebody to look at if they're like really hungry in a calorie deficit and I still feel like they have the appropriate deficit and I don't want to make changes to the calories that they're eating, I'll say, I want you to look at the difference in the volume of rice versus potato yeah. that you have because the rice for like, if you look ounce for ounce, mm -hmm. eight ounces of rice carb wise, doesn't matter brown or white either way carb wise is going to be equivalent to, let's say maybe 12 ounces of potato, right? So just sheer volume. Yeah. You're looking at something that is going to fill you up more because when we talk about ghrelin, this is a perfect example, right? Ghrelin is, has to do with whether or not your stomach is full, right? So if your stomach fills up, it's essentially like, think of you're filling up your stomach with food, you're eating a meal. If the meal is too small and that food doesn't kind of like touch the edge of your of the inside of your stomach, the lining of your stomach, then you're not going to feel satiated. But if you're eating enough sheer volume that's going to fill it up, that's what's really going to affect that ghrelin hormone. Yeah. 
No so, more stomach growling. What's that? I said growling. no more stomach growling. That's how yeah. I remember ghrelin. Ghrelin, ghrelin, stomach. Right, exactly. Yeah. Right. So that is where you want to look at the volume of food that you're eating and how can you eat more volume without exponentially increasing your calories mm-hmm. while you're going to eat more produce. And I think that's something that people really need to get used to. And listen, you can look at a lot of other things too, right? Like I have been eating recently Granny Smith apples. Mm-hmm. And They're I really favorite. And I realized that I can get away with eating more Granny Smith apples because you and you know what you see this in the taste too, right? Because it's more yeah. acidic and less sweet. Yep. You have more acid, less sugar. And one medium Granny Smith apple is going to be about 15 grams of carbs versus let's say like uh Macintosh is what I usually go to. Mm-hmm. That's going to be about 25 grams of carbs for yeah. the same size, right? Yeah. So I can eat two Granny Smith apples or I can mm-hmm. eat one of the uh, of whatever other apple that I'm eating. Yeah. Right. So it's important to kind of play around with your food a little bit and really kind of think about thinking, think about that volume play, but also think about your fiber. Uh, And then when it comes to fiber, like as a general rule of thumb, I always say 25 grams for women, 35 grams for men. Or if you want to base it off of your calories, it's 14 grams per every thousand calories. Uh, if your calories are significantly lower, you might want to take both of those and just take whichever is kind of the higher of those. Mm-hmm. And that's going to help you out from a hunger and satiety standpoint. Yeah, I think it's important to play. You said play around with variety. I think that's one of the things we lack the most when it comes to meals and and creating a meal plan for the individuals. We're so busy following like the cookie cutter programs that don't match what you're actually hungry for, how your body feels when you eat it and how full you get from different types of vegetables or different, whether it be rice or potatoes. This is why coaching is about the individual and not just a blanket plan for everybody, because so many of these aspects of hunger will have an effect on how well you adhere to your program. All right, moving along. Let's talk about protein. Eat a lot of it. The most coveted macronutrient here. (laughs) So a high protein diet is said to affect hunger and appetite. So looking at this, mechanistically speaking, uh, when you compare high protein diets to no protein or low protein diets in randomized controlled trials, um, you see significant reduction in the higher protein groups, uh, reduction in ghrelin, which we talked about. Uh, If you reduce ghrelin, you're going to be less hungry, right? That's released by your stomach to tell you that you're hungry. So if you reduce it, you're going to be less hungry. Uh, and you see an increase in a hormone called cholecystokinin, which is uh, abbreviated as CCK. And that hormone uh, is released by your stomach after a meal to aid in digestion, but also reduce appetite. Uh, and we also see an increase in peptide YY, which is a hormone released by your intestinal cells to also reduce appetite. So there's, we look at, there's, um, kind of a dose response here where the more protein you eat, obviously up until a certain threshold, but the more protein you eat, uh, the more you're triggering these hormones that are telling you that you're satiated. Uh, In addition, protein tends to delay gastric emptying because it takes the longest to break down out of the three macronutrients. So protein, carbs, and fat. Uh, Protein also has the highest thermic effect of food. So when we're talking about a fat loss strategy, Uh, you're going to burn more calories breaking down because it takes so much time and effort and energy to break down protein. It's also going to use more energy and use more calories. Uh, Low levels of PYY, which is the peptide YY, 
have also been associated with higher BMI and obesity, right? So um, I would also say that eating less protein is uh, associated with higher BMI and obesity and having less muscle mass and a higher percentage of body fat and all of those things. So there's really no downside to eating more protein and it's a dose response. So up to a certain threshold, like I said, the more protein you eat, the more satiated you're going to feel. A couple of things to think about when it comes to protein consumption, the general recommendation for protein intake is 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight. 2.2 grams per kilogram is going to be your body weight in grams of protein. So just to kind of simplify that. Uh, and the one thing I'll say is, uh, when you're in a calorie deficit, you'll want to be at that higher end, not that, that lower end because of that hunger piece, but also because protein is muscle sparing. And what happens when we go into a deficit, especially when we dip our calories to a pretty significantly low place, like let's say towards the end of a fat loss phase, when we get to that part of the phase, we want to be muscle sparing because what will essentially happen is if your body feels like it's not, it doesn't have enough energy, what will happen is you'll go through a process called gluconeogenesis, where you'll break down protein in order to get more carbohydrates. So protein will break down and turn into carbohydrates. You kind of want to avoid that by making sure that, or, or make that less detrimental by consuming adequate protein so that you can cover all bases. So even if you do go through some gluconeogenesis, you still have enough amino acids circulating in your bloodstream to focus on workout recovery, uh, building lean mass, maintaining lean mass. You want to do whatever you can to maintain your lean mass in that fat loss phase. All right. So moving along, uh, the last one we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about water and we're going to talk about hydration. And let's be real. Many people don't like a lot of people don't drink adequate water. Uh, the general recommendation for water intake is half your body weight in ounces per day. Now, there's a little caveat to this. If you're a little bit on the heavier side, you have a higher percentage of body fat. You may not necessarily need to or even be able to get into that kind of range of half your body weight in ounces per day. So uh, you may have to adjust a little bit to account for that. If you tend to like, if you have like, let's say 30, 35 and beyond percent body fat, right? You may have to adjust for that. Generally speaking, you'll want to have half your body weight in ounces per day. Uh, and the studies on drinking water, drinking adequate water, uh, show that if you drink water, let's say, and this was kind of like, uh, almost like spoken as if it was like a wives tale, but it's true, right? If you drink a glass of water before you eat your meal, you are likely going to be more satiated at the end of that meal. Um, and that effect seems to be consistent all across the research. Drinking after is kind of mixed. Like, is it going to, you know, are you going to feel more satiated drinking before or after? I think we definitely know that drinking water before your meal is definitely going to help you. What I'd really say is just make sure that you're drinking adequate water before and in between and all throughout the day, and you'll have all those uh, bases covered. But with water, try and gradually increase your intake, just like any other goal, right? Just yeah. like protein, just like fiber, like gradually increase over a period of time how much water you're drinking. You'll find that in the beginning, you'll have to pee a bunch. If, mm -hmm. if it's a significant jump for you, but you'll adjust and get used to that over the course of a few weeks. The other thing that I'll say about 
water is one common question that I get is what about tea? What about coffee? What about, uh, can I flavor my water? What about like sparkling water or seltzer? I am totally fine with any of those things. I know some people might say that, oh, well, coffee is a diuretic. I don't think that it's enough of a diuretic, especially if you're a regular. So coffee seems to be more of a diuretic if you're new to coffee drinking and less of a diuretic if your body's used to it and you drink caffeine every single day. With that being said, even if you're new to it, the volume of water that you're drinking versus the diuretic effect, it's not enough for me to say, well, no, you don't count that as your water, right? Because essentially, what am I looking at here? I'm just going to overload people with fluids. Everything counts. So all of your fluid counts, all of the water that you're drinking throughout the day is going to count towards your, I mean, listen, your food is made up of mostly water too, but in terms of drinking fluid, mm-hmm. Just make sure you're getting adequate fluids in. I don't care if there's bubbles in it. I don't care if there's if you <laughs> flavor it. Whatever you have to do to get more fluids in, yeah, do more of that. Yeah, I, it, consistency is the last piece that I will continue to bring up every time we talk about this stuff. So, getting protein, getting fiber, getting sleep, being hydrated, consistently doing those things is also the last piece because you can do it here and there, and and spotty and you will have just as much inconsistency in your hunger levels when things are all over the place. Then if you are consistently doing those things, then the the hunger levels will balance out. So this is why it's important to take them one step at a time and slowly add them in so you can, you know, get really comfy and juicy with them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if I really had to focus on prioritizing one, like mm-hmm. I said, is like getting your sleep in is going to be the first most important thing. All right. So ladies and gentlemen, that is how to manage your hunger in a calorie deficit. And I hope that was helpful for you. And if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, share this with a friend, and you'll hear us next week. 